You know, last week we saw the Apostle Paul standing before a very powerful, wealthy, comfortable governor, and he afflicts that smug, wealthy, comfortable man with a message of judgment. And in our story today, he's standing before a group of men who are afflicted, and he comforts the afflicted men with a message of hope. And so today I want to talk to you about hope, you know, the message of hope that we have to bring the world. And I want to begin by sharing with you some words from Lewis Smeads. So uh, Lewis Smeads was a former prof at Fuller. He was a Christian author and ethicist and theologian. And in a sermon called Keeping Hope Alive, he said this. He said, I have just one thing to say to you. Never give up hope. Never give up hope for your children. Never give up hope for yourself. Never give up hope for this bruised and broken world. Never give up help because he says, if you let hope die, you will die with it. They may not bury you for a while, but without hope, you are a dead person walking. As long as you keep hope alive, get this, hope will keep you alive. And I, I think that line struck me, if you let hope die, you will die with it. And it reminded me of a book I read a couple years ago uh, called Man's Search for Meaning by uh, a Jewish uh, psychologist uh, who suffered the horrors of Auschwitz. And in his time in Auschwitz, he did actually some, you know, internal studies. It was kind of how he got through. And one of the questions he asked was how was it that some prisoners had what it took to survive while others gave in and just would die? Like what was the thing that made a difference between the survivors and the one who died, he said, was hope. And he said this, when you saw a prisoner lose hope, he said it was over. And he tells this dramatic story of a friend of his who was a, a senior block warden and he was a Jewish man who had formerly been a composer and a brilliant musician. And he had this dream that the war was going to end on March 30th. And he, he felt like it was a revelation from God. And he went and told uh, Dr. Frankel about that. And he said, hey, what do you think about this? And, and he's like, I, I don't know, you know. But, but he held on to this as, as hope. And, and he, his next few days, he, he was living very, with, with a lot more energy. But then as the 29th and the 30th of March began to approach, and it became very evident that the war was not going to end anytime soon, uh, the man got sick on March 29th. He had a terrible fever on the 30th, and by the 31st, he was dead. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all of the diseases in the camp. And Dr. Frankel said this. He said, the prisoner who had lost hope in the future his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. In other words, you need hope to survive. And I don't know if you found this in your own life, but when you find yourself getting numb to life around you, you just have that low-grade sense of despair, like what's it all about anyway, and does it have any meaning, and it's no use, and why keep trying? And, and you start to cease to live at that moment. And so I just wanna ask you, where do you find your hope? Where do you root your hope? And I wanna invite you to take that question with you into the story that we're gonna look at today, because in our story, we see 
a, a group of people who are afflicted with utter hopelessness, and they encounter a message of hope that transforms them and transforms the Apostle Paul. And so I want to invite you to enter with me into the story. Now, let me just set the story in its context. So at this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, get this, is in a small fishing village off the island of Crete called Fair Havens. And he is wringing his hands in worry. And he, he's, he's anxious because he's heard the, the ship's captain talking and they're about ready to set sail. Now you're like, well, wait a second, like, what's he doing in Crete? I thought he was in, in prison last time we <laughs> talked about it, yeah. So you remember up to this point, the Apostle Paul was in Jerusalem, he got jumped and then he got arrested in the city of Jerusalem. And then he got taken up to Caesarea where he spent two years languishing in jail for a crime he didn't commit and then he was tried unjustly and then finally he appealed to Caesar in Rome. And so where we pick up the story, Paul has gotten on a ship with some other prisoners, with some other friends of his, with the centurion and some other Roman guards who are keeping watch over, and they've taken a ship up the coast and along Asia Minor. They stop in Myra, and they get on a much larger kind of ship. So back in the ancient world, they didn't have passenger liners. Uh, there was no, you know, carnival cruises. And so if you were gonna travel to Rome by ship, you would typically do it by riding in a cargo ship. So this cargo ship uh, probably looks something like this. Uh, it's like a re modern reproduction of a uh, ancient cargo ship. And there were some 276 people on this ship. And what they would do is they would, they would uh, take grain from Egypt and they'd bring it up to Rome. And so they did this all throughout the, the, the the late spring, the summer, the early fall, but then during the winter months, they wouldn't get in the ship and go on the seas in the Mediterranean because it got scary. And so where we're at in our story, uh, this little journey that they had taken had taken a little bit too long. It's gotten kind of late in the season. In fact, Luke writing about this, he said, look, since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous. You're like, well, wait, why is it dangerous? Well, it's because it's moving into those winter months where you can have unpredictable winds surface and begin to stir up some really scary waves. And this is freaking the Apostle Paul out. I mean, think about this. Paul, uh, when you read through the, 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 the New Testament, you discover this guy had been through three shipwrecks. And have you ever been in a car accident, like a really bad car? Have you ever been in more than one car accident? And it kind of traumatizes you, and that trauma almost lives in your body so that if you're driving by the same street or you have kind of a sudden jerk in the car, you can almost feel your body reacting. And I could just imagine the Apostle Paul sitting on this little island of Crete, looking out his window thinking like, I don't think this is going to go well. And I've been through this already. And of course, Paul grew up in... Uh, the Jewish culture. And so in the, in the ancient Jewish imagination, they also associated uh, the dark seas and the storms on the seas with the forces of chaos and darkness. And so there was a particular fear they had. And of course, if you had spent, you know, days of your life at sea in the middle of the night being tossed about by waves, not wondering, not knowing whether or not you're going to live, you wouldn't want to relive that situation, would you? And so this is Paul, so he's like freaked out about it. it's late in season, now we're going to get on this ship with 276 people and take it up, like, I don't want to do that. And so what does Paul do? He advises the centurion who is giving oversight to all of the prisoners. <laughs> Look at what it says. 
I love this. Paul, he's neither captain nor owner of the ship, but he's got some advice. He advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be, will, be, uh, will be met with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also for our own lives. Now, unsurprisingly, nobody listens. The centurion paid no more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship, which you think like, yeah, I mean, he's a centurion. He's going to pay more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship. Of course, he did like Paul, and he respected him, but he's like, uh, I think I'm going to pass on, on the prisoner, and I'm going to go with the pilot, you know? And uh, so he ignores what Paul says. It's like, thanks for the advice, prisoner, but I'm going with the captain. And they thought that the journey would be worth the risk. I mean, there was money involved. And so let's, you know, a little risk and reward. And not long into the journey, not long after the ship leaves port, Paul's worst fears get realized. Look at what it says. But soon, a tempestuous wind came called the Northeaster, and it struck down from the land. And when the ship was cut and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now, for those of you who are not real familiar with boating, you know, um, like this is bad news. Like this massive storm hits and it starts blowing this ship so that they no longer have control of it. Can you imagine? You are the captain of a ship with all of this cargo and all of these people, and you are now being blown this way and that, and it is out of control. And you are meeting these crazy waves in the sea. And look, the ocean can be scary, can it? You know, my father-in-law owns a boat. It's a 45-foot a trawler. It's a 1969 wooden boat. It's beautiful. He keeps it in pristine shape. But he took this boat, he told me, from the Channel Islands back to, to Santa Barbara one year, and they were met with 20-foot waves. And he just said, you see how tall that is? He says, we were up on the bridge with our life vests on, and we were not just getting hit by spray. We had waves coming over the top of us, and we did not know whether or not we would live. And he said, we just bare-knuckled that thing for dear life all the way back. And look, here is Paul, here are all of the sailors and the captain, and they're being caught by these massive seas. They've lost control. They're at the mercy of the winds. And, and they begin to get desperate, as you do. Since they were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They're, they're, they are jettisoning their prophets, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now, I don't know much about boats and fishing, but I know this tackle was the means of production. That's how they earned their living was by catching fish, and now they're throwing their means of production overboard. And what Luke is telling us is just how dire and desperate the situation became. In fact, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us. So they're being violently tossed about by the storm. They're terrified. I mean, this is the stuff of nightmares. It's the stuff, being out, could you imagine? I mean, this is like, it's pitch black and you're out in the middle of the ocean and there is no Coast Guard. There are no helicopters. Nobody is coming to the rescue. And here you have no idea what's going to happen. And they are utterly desperate. They're throwing away their, their, their means of production, all this stuff. And their desperation leads to resignation. Because look at what it says next. And all hope of our being saved was at last 
abandon. Now, just let that line sit with you. All hope of our ever being saved was at last abandoned. That's a powerful phrase. And of course, it is not just a storm you meet at sea that might lead you to the place of feeling like all hope is lost. There are other kinds of storms that can render you hopeless. You know, for some of you, there might be a storm in the home and parents are erupting in anger and verbal abuse and physical abuse, and you have prayed for months and maybe for years, and you've tried to be a good kid, but nothing you throw at it is able to do anything about this untamable, chaotic force of your home. Some of you, you know, you've experienced a storm in your marriage, and you've gone to the conferences, you've gone to the therapists, uh, you've, you've brought the flowers, you've gone on the dates, and it just seems like no matter what you throw at it, nothing can, 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 can get a handle on this darkness. Some of you have felt a storm within, and you know deep, crippling anxiety and depression. You just feel like you've got this storm going on inside and it seems like you're, you're, you're at the therapist and you, you've tried medication and you've tried, and you just feel like, like, and you start to reach a point where you feel resigned and hopeless. Is this ever gonna get better? And you give up hope, you know, and some of us, we have, we have, we have forces hitting us from all sides. You know, I don't know if you've ever felt like this. I can relate to this, but I feel myself at times being pressed in by crosswinds. And it seems like it can be relational, it can be vocational, it can be financial, it it can be spiritual, it can be all kinds of crosswinds. And you can just feel like there is a storm like brewing inside and you you feel like you can't put your arms around it. And and you can reach a point where you, you become hopeless. Have you been there? Are some of you there right now? Well, this is the state that the sailors were in. This is the state Paul was in. And and, and it's interesting, everyone's in the same boat. You know, the the merchants are there, the sailors are there, the enslaved are there, the prisoners are there, the centurions are there, and they have this all in common. They're all in the same boat. And listen, there's a lot of things that divide us, but one of the things that unites us is we all know storms. We are all in the same boat. We know what it means to be afflicted. Can't we be a little bit more kind to each other, knowing that we share the same kind of storms? So they're into this, they're in this crazy, hopeless situation, and it's at this point that the, Apol, the Apostle Paul stands and delivers. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them, and he said, men, You should have listened to me. Paul is about ready to give a word of hope, but not before he says, look, I told you so. You know, I'm just saying, you should have listened to me. Uh, Some of you, you know, we know who you are. Man, just saying you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. But then he turns from the I told you so and he speaks this word of profound hope. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart. Be encouraged. Don't give up hope, for there will be no loss of life among you. You are going to be okay. 
Only the ship's going to be lost. But for, for, they're like, well, how do you know that? He says, well, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You know, it struck me this week, like, Paul was afraid. That's why he was told, do not be afraid. And it just struck me that God didn't save Paul from the stuff that Paul was scared of. And listen, God is not likely to save us from things we're scared of. Sometimes you have to walk through things you are terrified of. And here, the angel says, look, don't be afraid, Paul. Like, I know that you're ter- like, it's, everything's triggered inside of you. You're like, ah, like, not again, not another, a fourth shipwreck, really, you know? And uh, he said, behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, which tells me that he had been praying that God would not just save him, but also everyone else who had sailed with him. And he says, God is going to rescue you all. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Let that line sink in. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. His hope was grounded in a profound trust And he speaks this word of hope to everyone who is terrified and hopeless. Now, listen, there are two kinds of words of hope or encouragement you can speak. You can speak words of encouragement based on what you see in the day, right? And and what are those kind of words of encouragement? Well, it's like, it's the stuff everybody sees. It's accessible to everyone. Like, hey, I mean, you know, you did great on the exam. You know, um, you're an amazing person. Like, you look great in that dress. You know, your house is lovely. The car is great. Whatever, you know, like, like, I'm proud of you. Like, you can speak encouragement and hope over people based upon what you see in the day. But there's a second, I think, more profound kind of hope that Paul speaks here. It's not based upon the, what he sees in the day, but based upon what he hears in the night. And what Paul hears in the night is a word that is not accessible to this present reality. It is a word of hope because it's a word about God who ultimately rules all of creation in his infinite love and mercy. And he says, I have a word of hope for you. Don't just base your hope on what you see in the day. Ground your hope on the word that comes in the night. But... I think what's interesting in this moment is although Paul speaks hope, and I think, like, I hope this is encouraging to some of you. Although Paul speaks hope in this moment, nothing happens. Like, nothing changes. You know, he he, he says, men, I I had a dream, and here's what's going to happen, and don't worry, take heart. But they look around, and the storm is still raging. And it's not like Jesus. Remember Jesus? You know, he stood up and he said, peace, be still. And immediately the wind ceased and the waves stilled. But not in this moment. In fact, you could, you could say there's no immediate resolution at all. Actually, in some ways, it actually gets worse before it gets better. Now, at first, it starts to get a little bit better because uh, as the story unfolds, uh, later that night at midnight, the sailors spot land. And it turns out it's the island of Malta. They're like, land ho, you know? And so everyone just prays for daybreak. They're like, 
The day can't come soon enough land, you know? And the sun comes up and they see it, there's land. And, um, and Paul says, be of good cheer, let's have a meal. They hadn't eaten for days. They didn't know how much food they'd have left. And, and so Paul says, let's splurge and let's have a meal. Strengthen your bodies. And, uh, and everything looks great. It looks like we're going to go right, right, right to shore. But then this, but striking a reef... <laughs> Like, dude, we just got out of a storm, and now we got to strike a reef, you know? But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the boat stuck and remained immovable. So now they're stuck, the boat is breaking apart, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. There's these big old waves pounding the boat now. Now everyone's like freaked out by the storm, and now they're like freaked out by the, the, the land, you know? It's like the, the reef. And they're stuck, and the whole thing is breaking apart. And, and not only that, the soldiers are freaked out about what might happen. Oh, they're gonna jump off, we're gonna lose them. So then the, the soldiers concoct this plan that they're gonna kill the prisoners. So now, like the storm, yeah, we're gonna be, apparently we're gonna be safe from that, but now we got the reef, and now the soldiers are pointing their rifles at us. I mean, they didn't have rifles. Swords, I don't know. Anyway, but the centurion, who was actually quite fond of Paul, spoke up. And wishing to save Paul, he kept them from carrying out their plan. He says, e easy, boys, <laughs> relax. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or pieces of ship. That word planks could also be translated board, someone on board, someone on pieces of ship. And it was that all were brought safely to the land. Now, some people think that surfing was developed in the Polynesian islands. Um, you didn't know that here in the Mediterranean is the first example of surfing we know of in ancient literature. They hopped on boards and they rode waves safely to the land. I mean, it's right there. It's right there in the Bible. It did strike me. Like, how terrifying. Like, you're stuck on a reef, and the guy's like, now I want you all to jump overboard into the waves and swim to shore. They're like... I'm already traumatized by this whole experience, and now I gotta jump, there is no other way. You gotta jump in, get on a board, use your arms, whatever, and, uh, and they make it to shore, and the harrowing experience ends. And what I wanna do now is I wanna just stand back, and I wanna suggest that this word brings us some good news and some bad news as it relates to the topic of hope. Now, shall we go with the bad news first? Start with the bad news. The bad news is this. Inexplicable, untamable, dark, chaotic, and scary storms will come. Maybe sooner or maybe later, but you can guarantee this, the storms will come. You know, it's interesting. This whole story is framed by a promise and the fulfillment of a promise to the Apostle Paul. It begins with a word to him when he's still in Jerusalem, way back when he was in Jerusalem, two and a half years ago or whatever. And God said, you will testify before me in Rome. And then it caps off, they get to chapter 28, and what is he doing? He's testifying about Jesus in Rome. The promise has been fulfilled. Isn't that great? There was a promise and there was a fulfillment. But what was in the middle? Well, he was beat up, he was imprisoned, he was lied about, he was unjustly tried. He was in a shipwreck. Uh, he was in a storm. And then eventually he gets to an island. And then to add insult to injury, he's cold and wet. He's trying to prepare a fire for people. And he gets bit by a snake. 
And listen, this wasn't unique for Paul. This was standard operating procedures. Like this was how he lived his life. In fact, uh, he seemed to suffer all the time. <laughs> look, at, look at this. He describes his, his experience in life like this. He says, look, five times I received 40 lashes less one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. And then he said, look, I've known dangers, dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and from Gentiles and dangers in the city and danger in the wilderness and danger at sea and danger from false teachers and daily, and, and all the daily pressure and anxiety and sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You know, de describing one particularly dark night in his soul, he describes it like this. He says, there was this one season he says, where we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. We were utterly burdened beyond our strength. Have you ever felt like you just had too much to carry? Like you were just, you were trying, you just couldn't wrap your arms around all of it. He says, he says that we've known being crushed by the pain we're enduring. So he says that we despised and dis or we despaired of life itself thinking like it would be better just to be dead than be alive. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And listen, suffering, storms, it's not unique to the Apostle Paul. It is the regular, persistent experience of every follower of Jesus. Jesus himself put it like this, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. And James said, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kind. And Peter said, don't be surprised when you fall into all kinds of trials. And, and Paul told his early converts, it is only through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom of God. Listen, friends, the Christian life is a lot of things. It is an unending wellspring of faith and hope and love. You know, Christian faith is an invitation to be reconciled to your creator. It is a call to become people of character who know love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness. Christian, the Christian life is, a, is about a whole lot of things. But here is something the Christian life is not. It is not a product you buy in the religious marketplace to fix all of your problems and give you your best life now. It is not a pill that heals every wrong in your life that you're suffering right now. You know, and I know, I know that for many of us, for many of us, I mean, suffering and trials, it, it creates a real barrier for faith and a challenge. And some of you, you've got one foot out the door because you're just like, this doesn't make sense and it's not right, God. Why don't you do something different? And of course, if you've talked to a smart skeptic, I mean, the, the best argument against Christianity is the problem of evil. And look, you know, as much of a, of a problem as, as, I, as I, an intellectual problem, an emotional, experiential problem, as much as suffering creates that kind of problem for us, what's interesting is suffering was not a problem for the first century followers of Jesus. It was their expectation.
They didn't think, oh, this is a challenge to the Christian life. They thought this is what the Christian life is about. This is a mark of the Christian life. You know, and this is important, I think, to get down. And let me just say something, maybe a pastoral word to some of you who are in this room. Listen, the expectations you bring into your faith and relationship with Jesus have everything to do with whether or not you will follow Jesus over the long course of your life. And if the expectation you bring in is that Jesus is here like a cosmic genie to be your, you know, cosmic sugar daddy in the sky, and you rub the genie right, you say the prayer right, he gives you what you want, like you will be sorely disappointed. You know, um, back when I was in my early 20s, um, I bought my dream car. And it was a car I'd, I'd always wanted. It was a a 1987 uh, dark blue Jeep Grand Wagoneer with beige leather interior. And that car, like I had, I had seen that car, I had dreamed of that car, I'm like, I want that car. And, um, and then I remember like the two happiest days of my life were the day I bought that car and the day I finally sold that stupid car. Because I think every day in between was just filled with disappointment and, oh, another bill, another repair, another problem. And listen, like, I didn't expect that. Like, but, I mean, hello, Josh, you bought a, like, an American car with more than 120,000 miles on it. And it's a Jeep. It's not going to go well for you, brother, you know. Like, like what, you, what you expect has everything to do with whether or not you carry around resentment and bitterness and anger at yourself and other people and God. And so listen, this is, I guess, the bad news. Like inexplicable, untamable, chaotic, dark, and scary storms will come. And listen, if you're going to find hope in the face of storms, you cannot put your hope in a life free of storms. If you want to find hope in the face of storms, you cannot put your help in a life free of storms. Instead, you need to put your hope in something better, something more stable, something more eternal. And so here's the good news. There is hope in the storm. There is a better hope in the storm than simply a life without any storms. And listen, I I, I know right now, like, if you're cynical, you might start to hear me right now, like, oh yeah, Josh, you're telling me to hope and by and by, you know, pie in the sky or whatever, and it's going to be better, and, and so just grit and bear it in the meantime until God makes it. Listen, do not trivialize biblical hope. This has had a profound shaping impact on people's lives who are in the worst of circumstances. This week, I was listening to an interview with a Croatian a theologian, professor at Yale, whose name is Miroslav Wolf. And it was interesting because he began the interview by talking about his father. His father had um, been a, a baker, and then he was conscripted into the army. And he had communist sympathies, but after the Nazis were driven out in World War II, uh, his father was, for no fault of his own, found to be on the wrong side. And so he was forced into labor camps, and he was forced on a death march. Now, if you don't know what a death march is, uh, they would take a 1,000 prisoners, they would march them 50 kilometers a day 
for a month and a half straight, feeding them meager rations of about 200 calories a day. And what would happen is people would fall behind and they would just get shot. And eventually, he said, they, they completed the march, 300 of the 1,000 finished. And it was just, he just said, it was, uh, it was like the deepest hole of hell. And he was overcome with bitterness and anger against God, against the government, against the soldiers. He was just overcome and consumed by anger. And yet it was in the midst of this tremendous suffering that he had this profound change. And in the middle of the hellhole, he found God's goodness through a friend in the camp who embodied and spoke about the love and hope of God in Jesus. And Miroslav Wolf puts it like this. He says, look, for my dad, he said, in a matter of hours, everything changed for him. He went from being this angry, bitter person to somebody who, who could actually experience gratitude and joy in this camp. And here's what he said. He said, nothing changed in the situation, and yet everything changed because he himself had changed. And listen, some of you need to hear this. Listen, you want a change in the situation. And you're like, if only the situation would change. Listen, throughout human history, the consistent testimony of wise and sage people has been the change in circumstances is not the real difference maker. It is the change you must experience. It is the change in you. It's the change in me. He said nothing changed in the situation, and yet everything changed because he had changed. In the midst of the horror, there was the surprising ray of light that lightened him up from inside. There was a burst of hope where there had been only darkness and impossibility, and he was able to live with hope. And what was that hope? It was the hope of the resurrection. It was the hope in the words of Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Or just put it like this, you are going to be okay. You are safe and you are secure in the love of the infinite and eternal God. This God has, in, has become incarnate among us in the person of his son, Jesus. He has battled the storm. He has battled the forces of chaos, and he has been victorious, and you can rest in that victory. You can rest in God. You know, this year, probably the oldest living theologian, a man named Jurgen Moltmann, turned 87. Jurgen Moltmann, interestingly, was actually converted. He was a, a Nazi soldier for the Third Reich. He was converted in a British internment camp. He knew darkness and suffering. And at 97 years old, back in April, he wrote a letter to his closest friends. And listen to what he said. He said, resurrection to eternal life is my hope in life and in death. Eternal life has to be lived. This is the life of the new creation, and therefore death is the birthday to life, to new life in God's reign. Friends, this is the hope that can change us inside when nothing changes around us. 
And listen, the good news is, is not only that we can find hope in the storm, we can also find meaning in the storm. And listen, let me, let me just say something about this. So often we're like, God, if you would just tell me why I'm going through this, just explain to me, you know, why? Listen, darkness and chaos is not explicable. And it is not part of what God wills for creation. That's why God will drive out the darkness and the chaos. You know, the, the creation is not simply God up there on a chessboard controlling all the evil pieces and watch this and watch this and watch this. No, but one day his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And the darkness will be driven out. And as we wait for that day, we can find meaning even in suffering. You're like, well, how? It's like, how can I find meaning in this home life and in this marriage and, and in these relationships and in myself and in my physical pain? One of the ways that throughout history, people have found meaning in the midst of suffering is to learn how to endure as a person of character, to not give up hope, to practice love and joy and patience and gratitude bearing under the weight of suffering and pain. And by saying, I want to pursue that and grow into that, you actually are finding meaning in the midst of your suffering. And listen, some of you just need to, maybe you came to church to hear this. You are walking through something dark and may it be the hope that one day love, not hate will win, light, not darkness will win, the resurrection life of the Son of God and not death will win. And every choice you make today and tomorrow and the next day to extend love and to show gratitude, you are living in line with this new creation to come and you are becoming a person of character. In the language of Paul, you are finding that within you is working a far more eternal weight of glory as the inner man is being renewed day by day. And finally this, you can have hope in the storm and you can find meaning in the storm. And get this, friends, Jesus is in the storm. You know, um, scholars point out that Luke, who wrote both the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, so organized Luke and Acts that there are parallels in how he structured them. And in the parallel structure that scholars discern, uh, this moment here in the storm is parallel to the moment where Christ goes into the darkness of the cross. And I think that Luke is saying something about Paul's own suffering. And I think at least he might be saying something like this, when he suffers, when you suffer, you do not suffer alone. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who has become like us in every respect except for sin. And he has endured suffering so that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest. In other words, even though the person next to you doesn't always understand you, there is one who does. And you can go to him. And he has entered into the storm so that he might bear in his own body the darkness and the sin and the death and tear that power apart and rip, you know, the darkness out of this world and defeat it finally and utterly. And we wait 
for that day when Christ returns and the curtain is pulled back and he has revealed us the world's true King and Lord. And there is no more tears or crying or pain for the former things have passed away and he is making all things new.